I next met with Dr. Neil Shaw, who reviewed papers on CML, beginning with a Phase three upfront study first presented at ASH 2009, comparing dasatinib to imatinib. This study, of course, is what led to the approval of this particular agent, dasatinib, the recent approval in the frontline setting for previously untreated chronic phase CML patients. In this study, this was an update with 18 months of follow-up, and the primary endpoint of the study was a confirmed complete cytogenetic response rate. And confirmed complete cytogenetic response rate, of course, refers to a complete cytogenetic response rate that has a confirmatory analysis done at least 28 days later. So typically, bone marrow assessments were done every 90 days or so on this study. And the primary endpoint was the confirmed complete cytogenetic response rate by 12 months, which was previously reported to be superior for dasatinib 77 versus 67% in imatinib-treated patients. And in this presentation, we updated the data with 18 months of follow-up and showed that with longer follow-up, there still is a statistically significant benefit for dasatinib, 78% versus 70%. And if we look at what we have perhaps more familiarity with, which is unconfirmed complete cytogenetic response rate by 12 months. It was 83% versus 72%. So this is just any single complete cytogenetic response. It doesn't have to be confirmed. And with longer follow-up, the numbers were still in favor of dasatinib 85 versus 80%. Now, a lot of attention is being paid to deeper levels of remission, specifically molecular response rates. So the major molecular response rate or the three-log reduction rates by 12 months favored dasatinib 46% versus 28% for imatinib, and at any time was 57% for dasatinib versus 41% for imatinib. And the deepest levels of molecular response that we can determine are complete molecular remissions, and these are defined as a reduction to at least a four and a half log reduction from baseline in the B-seriable transcript level. And there were 13% of these occurring in dasatinib versus 7% in imatinib. And encouragingly, it looks early on that fewer patients transformed to accelerator blast phase on dasatinib, six patients versus nine patients on imatinib. The side effects of the agents were rather comparable. Some were more common in imatinib-treated patients, such as general fluid retention, myalgia, nausea, and vomiting. And others were more common in dasatinib-treated patients, such as pleural effusion and thrombocytopenia. But all in all, I think this study provides some longer follow-up and continues to support the use of dasatinib as a frontline agent for newly diagnosed chronic phase CML patients. Do you think that this study is ever going to show a survival advantage? So right now, it's still quite early. And with respect to survival, I think we have to keep in mind that chronic phase CML, it is not a disease that rapidly kills people, fortunately. And as a result of that, I think it'll take several years before there may be any difference in survival. I think we would expect to see differences in progression-free survival or event-free survival earlier than overall survival. I do think eventually that that may come, but it's going to be, of course, clouded by the fact that there are now salvage therapies for patients who fail imatinib. So it may or may not come over time, I guess I'd have to say. Have you seen any data or do you have any sense about what's happening in clinical practice outside of protocol setting right now in terms of initial treatment? I don't think anything can convincingly state that we should be using 
any one agent preferentially in the frontline setting. I think that both second-generation drugs look superior in terms of early response rates. The amount of follow-up that we have thus far is still relatively short. I think that people have a lot more familiarity with imatinib and its side effect profile. But what we've seen from the second-generation drugs is that as people are getting more comfortable using them, many patients, I think, are actually tolerating them reasonably well and, in fact, even better than imatinib in some cases. And I think that there will be a gradual shift towards these second-generation drugs over time. But I want to caution that the amount of follow-up that we've had so far with each of these newly approved agents is relatively short, and so we can't convincingly say that they are, in fact, superior to imatinib in a clinical sense, meaning in terms of progression-free survival or overall survival. We cannot say that quite yet. How are you approaching your own patients outside of protocol setting in terms of this decision? And what kind of protocols do you have available to them? So the way I'm approaching patients at the moment is, again, all three agents are approved. I tend to believe that until proven otherwise, because the complete cytogenetic and major molecular response rates of the second generation drugs look superior to imatinib, I think what we've learned from imatinib therapy is that these are useful surrogate endpoints for meaningful clinical outcomes, progression-free survival. And so I think that until proven otherwise, my preference is to go with one of the second-generation drugs. Now, as I stated a moment ago, I don't think anybody would fault any individual for recommending that a patient start on imatinib rather than one of these agents. But I've also invested a lot of time and effort into studying this disease at the molecular level and everything I know about the genetic heterogeneity that arises when the disease relapses argues to me that our goal should be to achieve deep remissions early in patients with the hope that those remissions will be extremely durable. So my preference is to go with one of the second generation drugs. And I there's nothing to suggest that one of the agents is superior to the other. So I typically have a frank discussion with patients regarding issues such as the side effects of the agents, things that we have to follow in terms of monitoring that may be a little bit different between the agents and differences in how the drugs are administered once daily versus twice daily and so on. How about abstract 3421, another analysis from the same study of dasatinib versus imatinib? So one of the things that we know when choosing agents, especially the second generation drugs, that there are hints that certain comorbidities should be avoided with these particular agents. And for instance, in the case of desatinib, there has been reports that patients who have, for instance, hypertension may be at a higher risk for having pleural effusion and other adverse events. And for nilotinib, there have been hints that patients with a history of pancreatitis may be at a greater risk of suffering pancreatitis on nilotinib. So this was an analysis of patients on the decision study which compared desatinib and imatinib in newly diagnosed chronic phase CML patients, and it analyzed patients based upon the number of comorbidities that they had and tried to see whether that had any impact on the response rate or the side effect profile. And roughly three-quarters of the patients had at least one baseline comorbidity on the study, and about half of the patients had at least two. But in terms of whether or not any of these categories of patients, whether they had zero, at least one, or at least two 
baseline comorbidities, having comorbidities did not have a significant adverse impact on either safety or efficacy of either dasatinib or imatinib in this study. So essentially, just in terms of a general analysis of comorbidities, there's nothing to suggest that patients, for instance, who may have more medical issues may have a significantly lower chance of achieving deep response or a significantly higher chance of having toxicity if they're treated with either dasatinib or imatinib. Any hints here or in any sub-studies about what's going on with the pleural effusion seen with the satinib? One of the things we've learned about pleural effusion, we've learned about some risk factors. And I talked about hypertension, certainly increasing age, a twice-daily dosing schedule, which we rarely use anymore. Other than that, one thing that came out of pharmacokinetic analyses was that patients who had a higher baseline trough level of dasatinib were at a higher risk of developing pleural effusion. So I think that it's certainly possible that there may be some interference pharmacokinetically with dasatinib with some of these medications that perhaps we haven't yet appreciated. Having said all that, I think that the issue of pleural effusion remains interesting and somewhat mysterious in as much as it's not a toxicity that patients typically get immediately. It can actually happen, you know, with approximately the same risk at almost any time after initiating therapy. So my thought process on pleural effusion at the moment is that there's likely to be a secondary infection or coinciding event that in the setting of dasatinib therapy may predispose patients to have uh, pleural effusion. Now, how that ties back to patients being on baseline medications, it's difficult for me to construct a logical argument or a logical thought process regarding that issue at the moment. This is usually a transudate or exudate? So the pleural effusions are usually lymphocytic exudates, and the lymphocytic nature of it is perhaps what leads it to be relatively responsive to interventions, including corticosteroids, quite frequently. We've also seen signals from a number of different studies that suggest that the patients who develop pleural effusions actually have, you know, maybe somewhat better response rates than patients who don't. And so... I think there's something that we can learn from it, but unfortunately at the moment we're still sort of trying to figure out what the pleural effusions are telling us. There is a hint that patients who develop lymphocytosis peripherally also have better responses, and people are, of course, eager to know whether this could be either a side effect or a direct manifestation of some immunomodulatory effect that the drug is perhaps unleashing on the disease to where patients can have deeper levels of response than simply through tyrosine kinase inhibition alone. But there's, I think, a lot still to be learned from pleural effusions and lymphocytosis with this drug. How about the SWOG study, the intergroup trial that was presented, late-breaking abstract number six, again, comparing dasatinib to imatinib? So this cooperative group study was designed very similarly to the decision study. This was, of course, a cooperative group study. It was, I think, unfortunately plagued by the fact that there were relatively smaller numbers of patients, only a total of 240 or 120 per arm. But nonetheless, it was a study that was performed in a cooperative group setting and similar to the decision study at randomized patients based upon the Hasford risk score. The primary endpoint of the study was the molecular response rate at 12 months, so that was a little bit of a difference with the decision study. What was observed in terms of side effects is that there was more grade 3 or 4 anemia and thrombocytopenia in patients treated with dasatinib. There were some side effects that were more common in imatinib-treated patients, such as fluid retention, nausea, muscle pain things that more or less corroborated what was seen in the decision study. 
pleural effusion and headache were more common with dasatinib. What they found in terms of the median reduction in BCR-ABLE transcript level was a significant superiority for dasatinib relative to imatinib. More patients treated with dasatinib achieved a major molecular response. It was 59% versus 43%. More patients treated with dasatinib appeared to achieve a complete cytogenetic response within 12 months. That was 82% versus 69%. And those numbers, I think, nicely matched what was observed in the decision study. So I think this provided, you know, nice sort of corroborative evidence in an intergroup fashion of the company-sponsored decision study. Now, the overall survival was not significantly different. There were an equivalent number of deaths in both arms in terms of progression-free survival, no significant difference. But there is maybe the hint of a trend at this point where 96% were progression-free in the imatinib arm and 99% progression-free in the disatinib arm. One of the other things that was a little bit problematic about this particular study is that the data capture was not complete to date. So they were still working on getting bone marrow aspirate results from patients and from centers to determine on an intent-to-treat basis what the complete cytogenetic response rate was. How about paper 358 that you were part of looking at lymphocytosis following first-line treatment? So this paper was designed to help us look a little bit more deeply into the issue of lymphocytosis, which has been described in dasatinib-treated patients and not really to any significant degree in imatinib-treated patients. It has been associated with improved response rates, but also an increased incidence of pleural effusion. And this was a retrospective analysis designed to look for the presence of lymphocytosis. Lymphocytosis defined as a total lymphocyte count of 3.6 thousand confirmed on another analysis at least 28 days apart. And to look at this in patients on both dasatinib and imatinib and see whether response rates or adverse events were correlated. Lymphocytosis was found in a much higher proportion of dasatinib-treated patients, 24% versus 5% of imatinib-treated patients. The lymphocytosis on dasatinib was found to be more common in patients with low-risk disease, low-Hasford risk disease, and also associated with a higher complete cytogenetic response rate, 84 versus 75%. And I think that's an important cautionary note in as much as you may expect patients with low-risk disease to have higher complete cytogenetic response rate. And so whether this is a red herring in this particular analysis or whether this is telling us something meaningful, I think we don't yet know. We did see that patients who had the lymphocytosis did have a higher incidence of pleural effusion. It was 18 versus 8%. Now, in terms of imatinib-treated patients, lymphocytosis was observed, as I mentioned, in a minority of patients, only about 5% of patients but the lymphocytosis was more common in the high-risk, high-Hasford-risk disease patients in whom you would expect to have a lower complete cytogenetic response rate, and that's, in fact, what was seen. So the fact that the lymphocytosis seemed to occur in different populations of patients in terms of their Hasford risk, I think, was unexpected and a little bit of a confounding issue in terms of how we should interpret this. There's also caution that should be raised about the fact that this was a retrospective analysis the lymphocytes were not collected and analyzed on a prospective manner. But I think it certainly, in conjunction with the other data that has been published and presented, 
largely from groups in Finland, but others as well, that has noted this issue in dasatinib-treated patients. What's nice about this study is that this is a larger study that looks at a large number of patients and doesn't restrict the analysis to dasatinib. But here again, I think we can stand to learn significantly more by further defining what this population is and whether or not it could be having any particular role in either disease eradication or in the side effect profile. How about Abstract 207, the Ennist update? Okay, yeah. So the first study to be reported to compare one of the second-generation drugs with imatinib was the ENEST-ND study, which was first presented a year ago at the American Society of Hematology meeting. This is a randomized study of previously untreated chronic face CML patients where they are randomized to receive one of two different doses of nilotinib, either the previously approved 400 milligrams twice daily or 300 milligrams twice daily, or alternatively imatinib at 400 milligrams once daily. And the patients were stratified based upon risk group. In this case, it was the so-called risk group. And the primary endpoint of the study was the major molecular response rate at 12 months. This is that three-log reduction in B-seriable transcript level. And this has been previously reported that it was superior in favor of nilotinib, roughly 43 to 44% versus 22% for imatinib. In this update, there's now data available from 24 months of follow-up. And I think it's nice to see that the difference in major molecular response rate between imatinib and nilotinib is being maintained. Specifically, the major molecular response rate for nilotinib was between 59 and 62% and 37% for imatinib. And then this deeper level of response, this so-called PCR undetectable or complete molecular remission rate, which again is defined as at least a four and a half log reduction from baseline, was between 21 and 26% in the two nilotinib arms versus 10% in the imatinib arm. The complete cytogenetic response rate, something that perhaps we have greater familiarity with, with longer follow-up, was 85 and 87% in the nilotinib arms versus 77% in the imatinib arm, a significant difference that's being maintained with two years of follow-up. Fewer patients that were randomized to receive nilotinib had a suboptimal response or treatment failure. Fewer patients, I think this is, I think, one of the more exciting things about this particular study is that it seems relatively early on that progression to accelerated or blast phase was significantly more common with imatinib treatment than with nilotinib. So this, of course, is above all else, the goal of treatment is to prevent progression to accelerated or blast phase. Now, the follow-up remains relatively short, But I think the fact that there's, at this time point, a significant difference is quite encouraging. So if the actual numbers for patients on imatinib were 12% that had progressed to accelerated or blast phase, if you exclude clonal evolution as a definition for accelerated phase, versus 2 to 3% for nilotinib-treated patients. Now, no differences in overall survival to date. Again, that's not surprising given the relatively limited follow-up. In terms of toxicities, certainly grade 3 or 4 liver function tests, lipase and hyperglycemia, uh, more commonly detected in nilotinib-treated patients, nausea, diarrhea, more more common with imatinib. Rash, headache, alopecia, and pruritus were more common with nilotinib. All in all, I thought that this was a nice update that continues to support nilotinib as a frontline agent for the treatment of newly diagnosed chronic phase CML patients. And there was another data set, abstract 2291, from the same trial looking at cardiac safety. 
So the issue of cardiac safety has gotten a lot of attention with tyrosine kinase inhibitors, and this goes back to 2006 when a preclinical study was performed that showed that if you knocked out the ABLE gene in mice, they could develop cardiac myocyte abnormalities. We haven't seen a lot of signal in terms of depressed ejection fraction, but nilotinib does have a black box warning for QT prolongation. So in this analysis, Richard Larson and colleagues looked at the cardiac safety of patients on the ENEST-ND study, which again was a randomized study comparing nilotinib to imatinib in previously untreated chronic phase CML patients. Now, one cautionary note is that this study did exclude patients with significant cardiac disease at the outset. So any patient with a QTC Friedricha of greater than 450 milliseconds or a left ventricular ejection fraction of less than 45% was automatically excluded. And on this study and in this analysis, patients, of course, were followed very carefully for the development of any cardiac adverse events with echocardiography and with electrocardiography. And essentially what was reported in this abstract is that there was really a small percentage of patients receiving nilotinib that had a significant prolongation of QTC beyond 60 milliseconds. It was between 0.4 and 0.7%. So a low frequency, but a detectable frequency, but nonetheless a low frequency versus 0% with imatinib. Now, fortunately, there were no clinical sequelae of any of these. There were no unexpected deaths, no significant changes observed in left ventricular ejection fraction either. So I think this is comforting because the issue of sudden deaths on the earlier nilotinib second-line studies was a little bit concerning, albeit at a low frequency. It was a little bit concerning to many of us, and I think this gives us some reassurance that, at least in this patient population, that there doesn't seem to be any appreciable signal. How about the paper by Miller et al., abstract 2301, looking at nilotinib after patients have been treated with imatinib and having suboptimal molecular response? So this was an interesting study. It is designed to take patients who have a complete cytogenetic response on imatinib, but no major molecular response, in essence, who have a what we would call a suboptimal response, and designed to assess the efficacy of nilotinib. Now, it was not a randomized study. It was a very small study with a total of 14 patients, but nonetheless did seem to suggest that the huge majority of these patients did achieve a major molecular response or a deeper molecular response when they were switched to nilotinib for a suboptimal response. Now, longer follow-up is needed to determine if, and really a randomized study is needed to determine whether this is superior to imatinib. At the present time, I think most CML experts agree that it's pretty much dealer's choice if you have a patient with suboptimal response. In other words, you can either continue the same dose of imatinib, you can dose escalate, or you can switch to one of the second-generation drugs. This certainly provides some interesting data, but again, it's a small study, but it does suggest that the majority of patients can do very well if you switch them to nilotinib. But I think really a randomized study should be done, I think, based upon this initial data to more formally address the question. How about abstract 208 looking at basutinib? So recently, yet another second-generation drug has undergone evaluation in comparison with imatinib in previously untreated chronic phase CML patients. This drug is known as bosutinib, formerly known as SKI-606. 
It's an oral tyrosine kinase inhibitor, not too different from the other approved second-generation drugs. And this was similar to both the decision and the ENAST-ND studies in as much as it was a randomized phase 3 open-label study in newly diagnosed chronic phase CML patients. And patients were randomized to receive either imatinib at 400 milligrams a day or bosutinib at 500 milligrams per day. And this follow-up presented at the most recent ASH meeting was from a median of approximately 16 months. And the patient disposition was one of the most telling things, I thought, where 19% of patients had discontinued bosutinib compared with only 5% of imatinib due to adverse events, whereas treatment failure was more common as a cause of discontinuation with imatinib 10% versus 3%. But that huge gap in discontinuation of bosutinib due to adverse events, I think really played a big role in what was observed in this study. So if we look down the road at 12 months on an intent-to-treat basis at what the complete cytogenetic response rate was, it was not significantly different. Only 70% of patients had got to this milestone on bosutinib versus 68% on imatinib. The major molecular response rate seemed to be superior for bosutinib at 39% versus 26%, but this, again, was not the primary endpoint of the study. The primary endpoint was the complete cytogenetic response rate. So the study, unfortunately, missed its primary endpoint. But the presenter of the abstract made a point that, in his opinion, he thought that most of the investigators had very little familiarity with this drug, and he pulled the trigger to discontinue patients perhaps a little bit earlier than was necessary. Of course, it's difficult to know, and the data are what the data are. But in terms of the issue of treatment failure, Treatment failure, as alluded to, is more common on imatinib, 10% versus 3%. Transformation to accelerated or blast phase was more common on imatinib-treated patients, 4% versus 2%. And death due to CML progression was more common, again, with imatinib, 3% versus 1%. So on an intent-to-treat analysis, no difference in overall survival, again, relatively early on. So we would not expect that. There was significantly more neutropenia, actually, with imatinib than there was with bosutinib. So from a hematologic perspective, it seemed quite tolerable, but there was a much higher incidence of grade three or four LFT abnormalities in bosutinib-treated patients. And I think one of the most problematic things was the GI side effect profile, where diarrhea and vomiting occurred in a much higher proportion of bosutinib-treated patients. And this is what led to the majority of discontinuations. However, the presenter argued that most of the diarrhea was relatively self-limited in as much as after a month or so it can resolve. But again, I think the proportion of patients who discontinue due to adverse events, including LFT abnormalities on bosutinib, was substantially higher. And this essentially prevented the study from meeting its endpoint. Having said all that, I mean, I think this agent, what we know about it from its previous small studies in the second-line setting, I certainly hope that this agent becomes available as another option for patients simply because there are people who cannot tolerate one agent or the other. And I think this agent does have significant activity, whether it's going to get approval in the frontline setting now that nilotinib and disatinib are there and have already established a higher bar than what this drug seems to have achieved. I think that remains to be seen, but I certainly hope it becomes available for second-line usage. What about abstract 210 looking at panotinib? 
So one of the problems that we've had in the management of patients with chronic myeloid leukemia has been, of course, resistance-conferring kinase domain mutations. And there's been one mutation. In fact, it was the first mutation originally identified back in 2001, which is known as the T315I mutation, which has really remained recalcitrant to all of our tyrosine kinase inhibitors that have been developed to date. Now, that has recently changed because the first agent to show any significant activity, the first tyrosine kinase inhibitors show any significant activity in a large proportion of patients is panatinib, formerly known as AP24534. And results of a phase one study were presented at the ASH meeting. And this agent, due to its structural design, is able to accommodate the T315I mutation in BCR-ABLE. And it interestingly hits a number of other kinases, including FLT3, FGFR, SARC, KIT, and so on. And at least in the laboratory, it's relatively invulnerable to all kinase domain mutations. And so we were very eager to see how it performed clinically. And in a study that was open not only to CML patients, but to patients with other hemologic disorders, the drug has undergone phase one evaluation and a dose-limiting toxicity of elevated pancreas enzymes has been determined at 60 milligrams and a recommended phase two dose of 45 milligrams has been identified. And in this particular study, the majority of patients who were enrolled and treated, in fact, did have BCR-ABLE positive disease and more than 90% had been treated with more than one tyrosine kinase inhibitor, and two-thirds of the patients had been treated with at least three tyrosine kinase inhibitors. So this is a very heavily pretreated group of patients. And in terms of the side effect profile, it seemed to be generally quite well tolerated, a very low incidence of grade three or four non-hematologic adverse events. Thrombocytopenia, grade three or four, occurred in 16% of patients and neutropenia in 7% of patients. Now, one of the, I think, most impressive things, of course, is the response rates with this agent where of 38 chronic phase CML patients, again, these are patients who are resistant to at least one second generation drug, 95% had a complete hematologic response and 53% had a complete cytogenetic response. And if you look at those patients that had the T315I mutation out of nine chronic phase patients, eight out of nine, or 89%, have achieved a complete cytogenetic response. And on the one hand, that's only eight out of nine patients. On the other hand, we haven't seen anything with that type of signal for this particular mutation. The drug has also been evaluated in patients with more advanced phase disease, and the efficacy to date has been certainly more modest. But I think the majority of these patients were treated with doses that were below the recommended phase two dose. And so one other encouraging thing about this particular study is that of the patients who have achieved response, they have almost universally been durable. So if it is true that this drug can control all mutations, one would certainly hope to see that reflected in really a wonderful progression-free survival curve. And this study is not going to be the one to formally address that, of course, but at least the preliminary data is suggestive that the responses seem to be quite durable. So this agent, based upon this study, is now in worldwide phase two studies for patients who are resistant to at least one of the second generation tyrosine kinase inhibitors. And as I alluded to, it's also got some activity in the laboratory against other kinases such as FLT3. And so based upon, I think, some preliminary results from this study, a phase two study in FLT3 mutant AML is also warranted. Do you see this agent being brought into the upfront setting at some point? 
This agent is certainly very interesting. I think if the bar to get into the upfront setting is superiority to imatinib, I think that this agent has a good chance of being yet another player in the frontline setting. It, of course, has the appealing feature of being relatively invulnerable to tyrosine kinase domain mutations, and that makes us optimistic that it would improve progression-free survival, even perhaps relative to a second-generation drug. But I think that's all scientific supposition at the moment, and we need harder clinical data. But I'm certainly optimistic about its future. But the landscape is becoming more and more crowded. And we should remember that you know, even with imatinib, somewhere around 55 or 60% of patients are in a deep cytogenetic response eight or nine years down the road. And we hope that that will be better now that we have the second generation drugs available. So there's definitely room for improvement. But I think that it probably will take a number of years to show significant benefit relative to the second generation drugs. You talked earlier about the possibility maybe of curing the disease and people being able to come off therapy. Conceptually, what kind of strategy you think might lead to that? So the whole issue of cure is obviously a huge issue for a number of reasons. For pharmacoeconomic reasons, it would be great to be able to stop patients who are on these drugs that can cost tens of thousands of dollars a year. And the current recommendation is that the patients take them indefinitely as long as they're tolerating the drug, even if they are in a very deep response. So that's one compelling reason. Of course, there are side effects with all these drugs. And I think There are probably very few patients who will tell you that they feel like they're taking absolutely nothing on the drug. So most patients, if not all patients, would prefer to not be on any agent whatsoever, despite the fact that these agents are generally quite tolerable. So with that in mind, the next frontier for the treatment of the disease and what's getting a lot of attention is to try to eradicate the residual cells that remain, the so-called CML stem cells that are capable of repopulating the disease. There have been a number of interesting preclinical findings over the past couple of years that have actual targets which can be potentially inhibited that may be particularly important for CML stem cell survival. The first of these to be analyzed in a clinical trial is actually the smoothened inhibitor. So the hedgehog pathway is activated by mutation in patients with Gorlin syndrome, which is associated with numerous cutaneous basal cell carcinomas. And encouragingly, we know that it's possible to synthesize molecules that inhibit this pathway and cause responses in patients with that particular disorder. So we can hit the pathway in patients and not cause any hematologic toxicity. And so one type of study that's being evaluated is to combine tyrosine kinase inhibitors with inhibitors of smoothened, which is, as I mentioned, in this hedgehog pathway, specifically with the goal of reducing the survival of CML stem cells. And this is a very appealing study, but it's going to take many years before we get a signal from this. I think the first signal will be that hopefully that we'll see more and more patients getting deeper remissions, but really the acid test is whether or not patients can stop therapy altogether and then over a period of a few years remain in a complete molecular response. And obviously, it's going to be four or five years before we have significant confidence that any agent is going to be able to do that. There are a number of other classes of agents that are undergoing evaluation, HDAC inhibitors, agents that interfere with the autophagy. And so this remains 
an area of really active, ongoing preclinical and clinical research. I think the hedgehog smoothen inhibitors are furthest along at this moment and have at least the greatest potential to, in the short term, give us a signal, but whether or not what we've seen preclinically and in terms of the importance of this pathway for CML stem cells, whether or not that is the case in people with the disease, of course, remains to be determined.